Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to Office <clears throat> Whoa, Office Hours. I'm David Meltzer, and it's time to elevate. That's right. Let's raise our vibration and frequency, our awareness to creating abundance in the world. And I couldn't think of a better way to elevate this show than to have our friend Nitin Rye here, founder and managing partner of Elevate Capital, Elevate.vc. Welcome, Nitin. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to have you. Uh, you know, Blaine and I, and he'll be here in a little bit, we wrote a book called Compassionate Capitalists. And it challenges uh, capitalists uh, to not only make a lot of money, but while they're making a lot of money, help a lot of people and have a lot of fun. And I yeah. think Elevate Capital's fun thesis, and of course their general outlook, is completely aligned with compassionate capitalism. I love I love that word. I'm going to use it. I'm going to steal it from you. Good. We'll send you a few copies. Just say, we, we call ourselves like, you know, mentor capitalists and venture capitalists with a heart. Uh, but I think compassionate capitalism is is really, that's, that's how you, that's just totally us. It sure is. And so what are the, some of the things that you do differently uh, as you're investing in, uh, different companies, early stage founders uh, that you feel uh, is aligned with that compassion? Well, so, you know, to give you a minute about myself, uh, you know, I started out as an entrepreneur in the early 90s. You know, this came in the way. Um, back then, Indians were good engineers and great donkeys, <laughs> you know, heavy lifters, uh, but not necessarily meant for being CEO or 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 even being entrepreneurs. And so, you know, I had to I had to fight all the battles and eventually just sort of create my own table. And fundraising was not easy for me. Um, and so when it came time to to start Elevate, you know, I thought deeply about like, because I got approached to start a fund. It wasn't my idea. I hate raising capital. Uh, but um, I, I, I decided that, you know, if I was going to do something, you know, I want to invest in entrepreneurs that have that are living my my own lived experience uh, as an entrepreneur. So, so the two things that were critical were access to capital, access to networks, and the, and the mentoring part. So that's really how I chose the direction. So to me, the underrepresented, underestimated, overlooked, uh, underserved was very germane to the position paper that I wrote for, for my lead funder. And so we basically focus on women, uh, BIPOC entrepreneurs, people of color, um, LGBT veterans, um, anybody, immigrants, anybody that, you know, uh, faces, you know, maybe conscious or a lot of times unconscious bias uh, when it comes to raising uh, capital, but more importantly, just even building a startup. So we really open the door to for these founders to, to networks that they don't have access to and all of the advice and mentoring that they need uh, to build their companies. Well, we are blessed with the compassionate capitalist himself, Blaine Bartlett, blainebartlett.com. Welcome to Office Hours. We were just talking about a thesis that is aligned completely mm -hmm. uh, with your business consultancy over decades of time. And uh, Blaine uh, Nitin here has started this fund. It's disruptive in its nature, but humanitarian mm -hmm. in its perspective. Uh, what were you thinking as you were listening to Natin's explanation of his past as well as his present trajectory of where he'd like to be or better? 
Yeah. Uh, I'm assuming my microphone is working here now. Yeah, you can hear you fine. You look better than you sound, but that's good. We're fine. <laughs> okay, good. Uh, I missed the introduction piece, Nitin, so my apologies for stepping in here late. Um, but I do have a question just in terms of, you know, the focus on Oregon specifically uh, with your work. Uh, is, yeah, being an Oregon duck myself. Uh, oh, wow. <laughs> I was just yeah, intrigued. And also here in the Northwest, I've, you know, you know, worked with a number of venture capitalists, particularly female, uh, yeah. uh, you know, in the v female VC space in, in tech. So yeah. Why the focus there, and particularly in the Northwest? When we started, the focus was the Northwest. It was, okay. Now, the first fund was was Northwest, but we actually became, I mean, we were one of the first institutionally backed funds with this thesis, the DEI thesis uh, back in, you know, I mean, I started working on it in 2015 because I got approached. And as an angel investor, prior to that, I was, without even thinking about it, I invested in women, had great returns, invested in one black entrepreneur. Uh, and so, uh, you know, ba back in those days, you know, when you, you know, you crawl, walk, run, right? So we didn't have access to national um, deals. We were, you know, I was a fairly uh, successful angel investor in Portland. So I, I decided that let's just focus on, and my lead investor, which is a foundation, also suggested that let's just let's just focus in Oregon and see what we get with this in the first one, but um, right off the bat, my very first investment was a black female from San Francisco who drove 15 hours to collect a $50,000 check, and she went to Stanford and MIT, by the way, and so uh, you know, so we became the kind of national, uh, but we weren't pushing that in the first fund. Fund two is um, pretty much. Uh, you know, majority now national uh, because the pipeline of entrepreneurs, especially when it, when it pertains to uh, black and Latino founders in tech, uh, you know, that pipeline doesn't exist in Portland very much. So uh, we were forced by thesis to, to expand. And I just happened to have a network, um, which, you know, which, which gave me some access, but most importantly, you know, the word got out. And when, you know, when it's a small community and, you know, once you write a check to one person, they talk about it to 10 others. And what's interesting is, you know, majority of my black entrepreneurs that I've invested in are black females that have the worst statistic in terms of access to capital, like 0.006%. And we have like, of the 100 plus uh, black females that have raised over a million, like 10 or 11 of them are from Elevate. So it's sort of, you know, um, and, and, it, and it, it didn't hurt to have a black female be my lead investor uh, from a local foundation called Meyer Trust. So, uh, yeah, we're national. And <clears throat> to that end, you know, we I'm actually starting my own fund, uh, which is mm -hmm. only male money. And I know mm -hmm. people are like, Dave, what are you talking about? I'm only taking men's money, but only investing in women and women of yeah. color with men's money. And Excellent. the reason is, is that over 73% of this earth is women and people of color. Right. And we're sinking in 2023 with less than 2% of women and women of color being funded. And if you take out Stanford, I don't mean to disparage your first investment, but if you take out Stanford graduates, it's even yeah. probably below 1%. 
Um, and I want to ask you a question about that before I know you had a comment, but there seems to be great intention in the world, um, but there's an invisible assumptions that are made. And how do we raise awareness to the invisible assumptions uh, for middle-aged white men who have a lot of money and for others who may have the greatest intentions, mm-hmm. but yet they need to unlearn or at least raise their awareness to these yeah. invisible assumptions with good intentions. So, you know, you know, people talk about meritocracy a lot, right? I didn't go to, I, I didn't go to a top-notch school. I, I went to a small college. And, oh, you went to Oregon. I went to a small university in, in Nova Scotia. Uh, and in that, in that vein, I'll, make the comment because it's relevant. Uh, majority of my investments are not in uh, graduates of Stanford and Ivy League. Majority of them are, did not go uh, to those schools. So we attract those kinds of entrepreneurs because those who went to Stanford, they have their own networks and, and they do get funded. Uh, perhaps not as, as large in numbers, but but yeah, th- that invisible, I think what, what happens is, and I face that myself, right, is that investors, pattern match to what they know, right? Mm -hmm. And they don't know what they don't know. And as an Indian entrepreneur, South Asian entrepreneur back in the day, you know, I was getting pattern matched out too, you know? Like I had a great idea. I had a, you know, amazing idea, amazing business opportunity, but I was getting this unconscious bias because I didn't fit that mold that they're used to investing in. So what ends up happening is, and I faced that even as an engineer, I mean, I fought so many battles to, you know, for a management position, I was declared, I was given the position, but they said you only get the 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 uh, lead position, and I quit. I said, screw this, I'm going to start my own table. You know, and I think so. What happens is that there is this unconscious bias, people don't even realize kicks in because you're pa- so. What happens is that the hurdles are higher. You know, and women face this all the time. Mm-hmm. Women come more prepared, right? More prepared. Their ideas are more big. They've done the work, but still they get more no's and because the bar is higher and people don't even realize that the bar is higher. So what ends up happening is for people like us, people are either consciously or unconsciously looking at reasons on why we would fail, not how we would succeed. And you put a young 19-year-old in a hoodie with this big-ass idea and you know they're looking at, oh my God, you know, what a great opportunity. I'm going to take a risk here, right? So you become risk averse the moment your thought process is about 18 different reasons why this would fail. Of course, you got to look at it from that perspective. But then when, when that becomes the more paramount evaluator in your mind, of mm-hmm. course, you're going you're gonna to take a pass because you say, oh, that's high risk. That's high risk. I mean, the irony of this whole thing, conversation, I'm thinking one thing, one thing. I went to the state of Oregon for raising money. I did get state of Oregon money. But the consultant back then, and I'm not going to name the name, uh, I'd gotten some money for a little fund that I created to sort of co-invest with angel investing that we were doing. And he looked at me and he goes, why are you doing this? Why are you doing this impact thing? You know, you in your own people. There's no money in impact. It's too high risk. And that was the pivotal point for me to say, you know what? By God, I'm going to do this and I'm going to show you that there's money in this. And we already have that in our first fund. Like, you know, at the end of the day, the way we measure our success isn't just the returns that we're providing to our investors, 
but it is the amount of generational wealth that's getting created in a very expedient manner. Um, and that's, that's at the end of the day, how do you level the paying, playing field? Is like these guys, these guys and girls, uh, you know, when they walk away with 15, 20 million dollars in about four or five years, net wealth to them, that's a lot of money. And they do good yeah. with it too. So, you know, and that's like for many of them, it's first bite at the apple, uh, by the way. They've got second and third bites at the apple. So, you know, we're, we don't chase unicorns. We just want them to be rich. We want them to be wealthy enough that they can support their families, they don't have to worry about a job, but then also contribute to their community and pay it forward. I love that. Um, you know, there, you, there were two pieces there that I really, you know, resonated with. You know, one was, you know, you know, just the nature of patterns. Yeah. And, you know, we, well, if you can, you know, this is what I love about, you know, disruptive and, uh, and elevate is certainly a disruptive force here. When you interrupt a pattern, different things become possible. Yes. So, and, and until you can interrupt the pattern, nothing happens that is different. No. So that I you know, that that whole piece, and so there's a question there about you know how do you disrupt that pattern thinking? And I know that this is going to be a longer answer than we probably have time for, but it is something that I would love to explore with you at some point in time. You know sure. that disruption in pattern, um, mm -hmm. and the other piece had to do with risk aversion. People are far clearer about what they you know what they mm -hmm. tend to lose than mm -hmm. what they tend to gain. Mm -hmm. And the default, and this is a pattern again, the default is organized around what, what's at risk here? What am I going to lose? Right. Not what's the potential upside on this. And, and, yeah. and I know that that's, you know, kind of antithetical. We, we are evaluated, and I include myself because, you know, even as a fundraiser, I've faced lots of hurdles. Um, we are evaluated on our ability to fail and not our ability to succeed. Mm -hmm. And it's the other way around when I call talk about the 19-year-old hoodie is is that they get evaluated on their ability to, to succeed. And so you're more likely to go in that direction when you see that. And so me as an evaluator, as when I look at these founders, I'm looking at it from a perspective of what is their potential to make it? And of course, we're gonna take six, eight weeks to then evaluate, you know, why should we not? But our, that's how we think because there's intentionality in that. And once you build that intentionality, and you, it comes with practice, right? You got to do a few, you know, you got to get a few wins and you got to be patient um, with some of these founders because, you know, they, some of them come from really poor backgrounds and they don't have access to networks. And especially if you haven't gone to Stanford and you get to some state school, you don't have networks. So we open, you know, so we do all of those things that are automatically assigned to somebody who went to Stanford or Harvard or any of those schools. Wonderful. Natin, thank you so much for being such a great cap compassionate capitalist. Blaine and I will send you a signed book as well so you can get some insight on the genius of Blaine Bartlett. I'm sure he wants to talk to you afterwards. Elevate yourself, elevate others, elevate.vc. Natin, come back and join us again. I would love to. Thank you. Great. Thank you. Great thank wisdom. You. Great power. All right, now we're back on track. We got Blaine Bartlett here, and Ben Hartley is waiting in the wings, the executive director of Silk Road. And if you know any background about Silk Road, this is an honor to have Ben here as well, silkroad.org. Welcome to Office Hours, Ben. Thank you, David. Pleasure to be here. Well, you have quite an esteemed uh, position in the world. It was well sought after. I know, uh, I believe... 
one of the creators of the nonprofit organization in which you lead today was created by the enormously famous uh, cellist Yo-Yo Ma. And uh, there was quite a, a huge pursuit for your position. What do you think it was that allowed you to be selected through that international search to run such an amazing organization like Silk Road? You know, I've worked in both business and the nonprofit sector all of my career. And Silk Road is that unique combination of a nonprofit. It's a 501c3. It raises funds. But it also has a true entrepreneurial spirit to it. It was founded by, as you mentioned, Yo-Yo Ma. Yo-Yo Ma, who is one of the few musicians, classical musicians, who transcends popular culture. And so you had a founder who had a vision. And his vision was around what happens when strangers meet the idea that people from different cultures coming together. And he started that 23 years ago. And I was brought in just recently because Yo-Yo Ma has now exited the organization. He still likes it, supports it, but we have a different artistic director. And so this organization was going through a period of change. And so what I'm particularly interested in is when organizations go through change, monumental change, in this case, a founder leaving, um, and what happens next? And so uh, I have experience with startups. I have experience in the world of culture and the world of media. And so I guess the uh, I went through many, many months of interviews and they did a very careful and thorough search and uh, they ended up choosing me, for which I'm very happy. Me too. Yeah. You know, yeah. part, part of the mission of the... Of the, of the oh, sorry, go oh, on, Dave. Please, go yeah. No, I was just saying that it's an organization that is at this pivotal moment um, where it has to, you know, when you leave a, lose a founder, when Tom Ford leaves Tom Ford, when Jack Dorsey leaves Twitter, when, uh, when Bobby Brown leaves the makeup empire, Bobby Brown, in the world of business, you leave behind shareholder value, you leave behind corporate structure, you leave behind board members. Um, and hopefully that goes on into the future. We're not sure about Twitter right now, but hopefully you know, there's something existing there. Uh, in, the, in the nonprofit world, in the world of the arts, when a founder leaves, you're leaving behind intellectual property and you're, you're leaving behind a promise, a promise to whether it's viewers, whether it's funders, whether it's other participants. And how do you keep that promise when a new founder comes on board? and um or a new a new lead a new artistic lead in our case uh, the organization went through a process not only did i come on but two years ago rhiannon giddens who's a grammy award-winning artist um just won a pulitzer how do you pivot from one to the other and that is where i spend a lot of my time working with organizations and in particular with silk road right now leading them through this transition so it gives us an opportunity to understand that you know when you trans when you go from a founder, you need to be in service of a purpose, not a person. Um, you need to have a clarity of mission. Uh, you need to think about who your stakeholders are. Why do you exist? You know, I always ask the question when I start with organizations, if we closed our doors tomorrow, who would care? no one cares, then maybe we should close our doors tomorrow because we've lost our way, we've lost our mission. And so that's, those are all the questions that I asked when I joined Silk, before I joined and as I joined Silk Road. 
I love that. And, and one of the questions I've got here, interestingly, is, I mean, the promoting of collaboration amongst artists and institutions and multicultural artistic exchanges. But one of the other missions is to Yeah, how does that actually come in with the work that you're doing and you envision uh, happening with Silk Road in the near and midterm? Collaborations was the core of the question, I'm sorry. It broke up, Blaine. Could you repeat the question? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. No. Okay. Yeah, there's you know, collaboration amongst artists and institutions, promoting multi, you know, multicultural artistic exchange, those sorts of things, fully understand. Yeah. The studying of the ebb and flow of ideas, which is also part of, uh, you know, kind of the mission, if you will, uh, of the organization. How does that actually fit? And what what are you seeing? Well, you know, say, you know, two to three years down the road with that particular area, the ebb and flow of ideas. It's it's a it's a good question because unless you have relevance to an audience, unless you have continued relevance, um, you question why you exist. In the case of Silk Road. You know, a lot of arts institutions are cutting staff right now in New York City. The public theater, major theater that produced Hamilton, that produced Chorus Line, just cut 19% of their staff. The Mark Taper Forum in L.A. is closing its operations. Post-pandemic, we saw federal support in the arts. Second year, um, the audiences are just not coming back. Audiences down 30, 40%. That's a part of your revenue stream. And so organizations are having to question how are they relevant? How, they, how are they continuing to be relevant? A project that Silk Road is doing that will really build relevance for us is so the Silk Road, as you know, historically linking Asia and Central Asia to Europe. Rhiannon Giddens, our artistic director, has come up with the American Silk Road, which is the American Railroad. And in particular, the Transcontinental Railroad, the railroad that finished in 1869, went from east to west, took what was a four-month journey and made it to four days. It's a story of innovation, of change, of finance, all the great positive pro-American stories. Um, but it also is a story of the people who built that railroad, the Chinese, Irish, Black, uh, Mexican-American, Indigenous populations, who really their story was never told. And so... Now we're entering into a, a touring, a musical evening called the American Railroad, which will be on the West Coast going through California in the month of November and then back on the East Coast in, the, in 2024. And it'll be a musical journey of the American Railroad. So this idea of the, the songs and the voices that were left out of that conversation in America that makes America so great, all those races, all those strengths. And it's, so it's going to be presented in a way that will be a performance It'll also be conversations. It'll also be spoken word and presentations from the stage. But not only in the stage, we're doing a series of performances in train stations across America. Yeah. With the idea that we have to try and engage beyond the traditional venues because the arts and business in general, if we keep on repeating the same patterns, we're going to get the same results quite often. So we're looking to go out into communities to engage with communities um, who perhaps haven't heard this story. One of the ideas is also to go on an actual train and tour across America and do performances from the train when we roll into parts of America that don't have a performance venue and um, opportunities like that are things we're exploring. Extremely creative. And you know what's so interesting with your background, both in the public and private sector, um, 
is this omni-channel operation skill set that you have. And I'm curious, as you transcend into, uh, back into, I should say, the nonprofit world, we have marketing, finance, business development, fundraising, and of course, you know, being able to collaborate in the management roles in order to lead uh, a company to a place uh, by breaking those patterns, those, as I said previously with the last guest, these invisible assumptions that can kill a nonprofit organization. Uh, and both Blaine and I have dedicated a majority of our time towards nonprofit organizations like Junior Achievement and Unstoppable Foundation. Uh, but of all the skill sets that you've uh, utilized throughout the years, where now do you prioritize uh, in this omni-channel approach? Wh where's the priority of your skill set for this nonprofit world that exists today? Mm. You know, I think right now I'm prioritizing asking why. Asking why. Mm. Why are we doing business as we are? Um, are we serving our audiences? Are we serving them at our point of excellence? Are we uh, offering something unique in the marketplace? There are many people and many organizations that do what we do. Um, but why are we different? And why are we essential? And so that I'm almost, I'm stepping back. I'm two months in the job and I'd really step in, but also step back and talk to the artists that we work with, talk to the organizations we partner with, talk to the board and others. Um, and I think the real skill set now is that, that that stepping back and doing an analysis, really an analysis of where we are and why we should, why we're compelling to the future. Um, there's a money part to it, obviously. There's you've got to keep the money rolling in to be able to do that. There's a mission part, and really understanding a clarity of mission. Um, like many organisations, we've had great breadth, but not great depth, and so we need to be thinking about depth and executing on that depth and meeting opportunities where we can do it better than anyone else. So that's really where I've been spending a lot of my time um, listening to everybody. You know, I'm always curious. I'm always curious to learn other approaches, other ways. And if there's, you know, I, I, I'm, I invite tension, not division, but I invite <laughs> tension. I like people who come from different points of view and I like it to be constructive and I like it to be respectful, but I like tension because that means we're striving for something better. That means we're striving for something new. We're creating something in a new space. And so I like that. That's where I'm spending a lot of my time and uh, interest with the organization. I know one call that you've already made is to Amtrak, right? They are, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And there are a number of great railway companies out there. Also, besides Amtrak, you will put the trains there. The people who own the tracks uh, are also great. Yeah. So uh, there's some terrific. And Warren, and Warren Buffett owns all those, by the way. Just how brilliant <laughs> he is to own the, last, own the last mile. He was investing in railroads years ago, and I picked up on it. But Blaine, ask uh, the final question. We've got a couple of minutes. Yeah, the idea of um, asking why here, and it, it, it's tied into relevance. And the idea of uh, in the, you know, and I'm going to use the word very broadly here, generically here, the, in, the, in the mind of your consumer, uh, your, your uh, you know, key stakeholders, uh, what would you say is the thing that makes you most relevant today in their minds? Mm. It's a, it's a question I ask every day, 
the staff and the artists we work with, why are they choosing to partner with us? Mm-hmm. Why are they booking us on a tour? Why are they calling us if they're calling us? And really what is essential to Silk Road has always been dialogue, not monologue. The idea that we can bring together conversations from different parts of the world, different traditions. So we have music musicians who are trained in Western classical music, gone through the conservatorium system. But we've got also musicians who learned how to play the tabla in India, their grandfather's feet in their local rural area. So that idea is core, that conversation that happens between people and always being open to that conversation. That's why people are talking to us. That's why they're interested in what we do when we go into education opportunities, when we engage with communities, it's always that dialogue, the conversations between differences and how we can have something shared together. Thank you. Beautiful. And thank you for your great work. We must keep these arts alive and it takes great minds, souls, bodies, and effort and tension as Ben Hartley has eloquently (laughs) explained, the executive director of Silk Road, silkroad.org. Let's all support uh, bringing us all together with music, entertainment, and, of course, community. Uh, we will have to have you back, and let us know when it's out in California. I will bring uh, Blaine and our families uh, to initiate uh, the offering across the country uh, with all of the immigrants. So thank you. We love that. Thanks so much. Thank, thank you, you, Ben. Okay. Thank bye. you, Ben. Yeah. Wow. I, 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 I love his perspective. You know, it's no yeah. doubt that he... He won that job because it was a hyper competitive job, obviously, with or 400 uh, uh, people interviewed for that. I mean, that's crazy. Yeah, with Yo Yo Ma as the creator, and now with Gibbons uh, involved as well. And, you know, so many different Guggenheim, and there's so many other partners that they have. Uh, we had to have them on office hours. All right, up next, Anthony Millen is in the house, CEO and founder of, hey, what about that? Next, next law, <laughs> next, next not law. Who's up next? It's Anthony Millen. Welcome to Office Hours. Thanks. It's great to be here with you both today. Well, it's great to have you here. And I have spent decades uh, in the legal space, uh, graduating law school as a recovering lawyer, forced to take the bar and pass, and then uh, working with uh, still the largest uh, legal platform ever to exit in 1995, so almost 30 years ago. We were blessed to have a $3.4 billion exit to Thomson Reuters at Westlaw. But uh, as the founder of Next, I am sure you are looking at the Next West, uh, helping startups and emerging companies. Uh, What are you guys doing in this space in order to facilitate finding who's the next super success? Yes. So, you know, just to understand where where Next comes from and and what we're doing, really stems from, I, I started like you in, in law and spent some time in a big, uh, one of the big New York corporate law firms and then jumped into becoming a serial entrepreneur and spent a decade on the building company, several institutionally backed companies. And during that period of time, I was using a lot of big national and global law firms and really began to experience this lack of alignment between the needs of startup and emerging growth companies, particularly the earliest stage startup, C through Series A, and the way the industry approached the delivery of legal services and made a decision to kind of combine my legal and entrepreneurial background and also spend some time as a venture partner in a VC fund 
to try to change and innovate the way legal services are priced, packaged, serviced, and delivered for startup companies. And what we've done at Next is first we tackled kind of three core um, pain points or challenging areas. The first was how do you bring predictability to legal fees for startup companies where every dollar is already planned for and budgeted before, before it's even in the door. And what we've done is we've taken a broad range of legal services around financings and employment and conversions and Delaware flips for global startups and a, a broad range, several dozen of these and literally productized them into fixed price packages that combine education strategy, the legal documents, all for a fixed price. So you know exactly what, what you're getting and you're getting very sophisticated, high quality, high touch legal services. The next pain point we tackled was how to devise, devise and put together a model where you always have access to seasoned attorneys. Because often as a startup company, you're not getting that, that access and those years of experience that, that come with it. And so we've set up a model where you always have access to seasoned attorneys. We've brought in a multi-level customer services model with customer relationship managers. And so that was the second. And the third is technology, how to bring technology to bear in the legal services for startup companies that makes the whole experience client-centric. So how do you make it transparent? How do you make it efficient? And how do you make it collaborative? So those were kind of the foundational components of what we did um, when we first started. And, and then we kind of expanded from there. That is really comprehensive. I mean, you know, this, <laughs> it's kind of, I'm, I'm sitting here kind of going, wow. Uh, and a couple of the startups I've been involved with, I would have loved to have had some of, some of this in my hip pocket. Um, what, what's the barrier to entry for you and your services in this regard? And I'm talking, you know, I'm, what I'm thinking of here is, um, is somebody that is relative, a relatively new entrepreneur, hasn't done much yeah, or has much experience in fundraising or anything else that's associated with that. And, I've got to, I've just got to assume that they have an enormous blind spot relative to the legal uh, necessities in that process. So just, you know, what have you found that needs to be overcome just in terms of an educational component? So, you're, yeah. you're exactly right. One of the biggest areas of the value that we provide is in the education and guidance, particularly for first time founders who haven't been through this before. There are so many pitfalls and blind spots in each area. In fact, we built out something called the Seed to Series A Roadmap, which lays out all of the blind spots that most founders will commonly fall into if they're not knowledgeable and prepared for it. Um, and we built packages around each of those pitfalls, each of those challenges. Uh, in terms of, the, of, of working with us, we believe every entrepreneur who is willing to put in the time and effort and 24 seven that you both know as, as entrepreneurs yourselves to build something and bring a vision and creation into the world should have a chance to do that. And so we work with companies who are just putting their idea together, companies that are raising seed financing for the first time, series A, and, and we, we've set it up in a way that companies can stay and grow with us all the way through 
centi-million dollar exits. And, and we, you know, in terms of this area that you're talking about, about pitfalls, we, we also, our mission is to empower startup success. We go much broader than just the, you know, the, the, the legal piece. And what we realized early on is as the, often the first um, professionals working with startups, there are other areas that, that they need help with. And so people would say to us early on, I'm doing the round, where do I get DNO insurance? What is DNO insurance? How do I find it? How do I get a 409A valuation? Who should I use for accounting? And so one of the next things we did is we built the next marketplace, which has over a hundred service providers in all of these different areas that, that founders are gonna need help with as they de-risk and grow. We launched Startup U, which is a masterclass educational platform of educational content for founders. We've launched Next Raise, which is a whole platform designed to help founders be investor ready and then to connect to investors in a more efficient and scalable way because you spend months trying to get in front of an investor. And if you're not ready, you're not investor ready, all that effort and time. So those are the kind of things we continually challenge ourselves to fulfill that mission of empowering startup success. Wow, <laughs> Anthony, I mean, there was not the word that I'm thinking of, but there's this other side of the equation that I actually was thinking about, and it comes from uh, being a serial entrepreneur, raising money and utilizing bigger law firms that uh, believed in me probably more than my company and it's mitigation of risk for the law firm. Uh, how does Next mitigate risk when you're working with startup companies and the majority of them may not be able to pay their bills for a long time or may not ever pay their bills? Uh, how are you counteracting uh, the economic risk in working with so many startups in this way? So what we've done is we broke the legal services down from these hourly bills at these incredibly high rates that just add up month to month and you turn around and you owe $100,000. We, we broke it down into individualized products. So the way it works is if you want to set up your company or you want to bring on employees or compensate your employees, we have these packages that you purchase. You're not accruing um, these these long, long unknown, ever increasing bills that you discover one day. So, you know, we're not the, we, we, we put our packages in an area where they're manageable, where they're fair. We pass a lot of the efficiencies that we bring to the delivery of services and a much lower cost structure to be able to price these services in a much, you know, in, in a way that, that, that not every startup, but most startups will be able to access. And so rather than, you know, rather than kind of the, the wheel of ever increasing fees and deferred fees and the bill becomes due one day and you don't have the capital, you're, you're able to step in and, and acquire. And, and also it's important as a founder, and, and again, you both know this having been through this, sometimes you can't do everything that you want to do. You, you also trying to build your product and you're trying to um, develop a marketing team or a plan. And so the other thing you have to do as a founder is learn which things do you have to do 
right now because they're critical to getting to that next step. They're the bridge to the next step. Which things can you, once you've raised your next round, you can kind of come back and address and deal with. And so yeah. th those are kind of some of the, the, the ways that, that we, we, we do this. That's um, I, again. I'm just kind of yeah. I'm actually kind of blown away with this. This is uh, I mean, you talk about a one-stop shop. This is and affordable. This is really cool, which kind of leads me to a question here, just in terms of a personal acknowledgement of you, Anthony. Uh, talk a little bit about your nomination at Legal Week. What yeah, what's that about? Right. Huh? Thank you, thank you for bringing that up. That was very exciting for us because we, you know we're we're in a, a world with these multi-billion-dollar firms and and. The fact that the lead, the largest legal publisher in the industry recognized, even though we're much smaller still versus some of these much larger firms, but they recognized the innovation and value that we bring into startups. And so we were recognized as the startup and emerging growth company law firm of the year in the United States. And then this year, we, we were finalists for the best law firm for startup success next, the next uh, group within Shulman Rogers. And we also were um, a finalist for the most innovation in legal services. So it, it's, um, I think it's, it's really a, a great honor and recognition for us and validation in, in what we're doing. And going into this, the goal was how do you make, take one of the biggest pain points in starting a company and, and allowing a innovative new approach to allow entrepreneurs to deal with what with something that is so integral and critical to their long-term success in a way where you're their partner helping them grow and de-risk their business. Love yeah, it. and if you want to catch more of this wisdom and thorough information, it's interesting. You have a, a founder's Q&A, which is obvious for someone like Anthony Millen. He should have that to handle all the questions. But I found also fascinating, he co-hosts a, a show called The Monthly Blend, which is one of the more specific podcasts I've ever seen uh, that helps European startups and accelerators set up shop in the U.S. Uh, so he's working on both sides of the fence in media as well and education, utilizing platforms uh, like podcasts to help so many founders as well as specifically help those in Europe uh, set up shop in the U.S. So many different facets to what you're doing, Anthony. Now, wonder, I'm so pleased that you're a recovering lawyer and showing what to do next is such an important prioritization, especially for a startup. Uh, check out next.law and you can find all the different things that we're talking about today and probably much, much more. Come back and join us soon. Anthony, we appreciate your time. Thank you so much for having me on today. Thank Congratulations. You. Great job. All right. Ooh, last but that. not least, Blaine, we're going to run this tight ship on the last guest because you know me, I got a speech waiting for me and yes. it starts at four o'clock. So uh, Eric Daimler is in the house, co-founder and CEO of Connexus, connexus.com. And uh, there's so many different ways uh, that people today can learn and build an expertise and knowledge. And Dr. Eric Daimler is one of those leading authorities that are helping us with AI and robotics as a servant to education and expertise. Uh, and I imagine 
how we synthesize data and what data is being synthesized in generative AI and robotics is going to be of a great interest for those that want to take advantage of the acceleration of knowledge and expertise in the world. Uh, his reputation and experience speaks for itself, including working with uh, presidents of the United States, in fact. Welcome to Office Hours, Eric. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's good to be here. It's great to be here. Well, let, let's just talk about at a high level uh, technology. Uh, I've been speaking on stages, as I just mentioned, about AI and technology robotics and the fears that people have because they think or fear that it may actually be a master instead of, as usual, people not looking at what we can do. They're looking at what we shouldn't do or what we can. So I use an analogy of a hammer, you know, a hammer can build a house. It also can knock down the house. <laughs> and if you want to use it in that manner, good for you. But there's never been a more powerful hammer in the world than the technology that exists today. And the houses we can build are extraordinary. How can we help people understand how to use the hammer? Yeah, it's a great question. And it's, it's certainly one that uh, came up quite often when I was working in the, in the US federal government. Uh, from elected representatives and also people within the White House or the executive. Uh, you know, the issue about uh, AI and robotics, as, as you said, isn't new. Uh, but what we're certainly experiencing with ChatGPT and other uh, expressions of the large language models is a certain uh, confrontation uh, to what it could mean in our lives. Uh, you know, when I was in public service, I would yell as loud as I could about people getting engaged in the conversation. Uh, but there is nothing like technology being out in the world to have people experience the disruption uh, that it could occur. Uh, we need to be involved in, the, in, in what this technology needs to look like. You, it, it, absent feedback from society at large, people like me are just going to be working on our quarterly objectives, developing the best technology we know how to develop. But we need to be thinking about how much uh, and where uh, we want to be genuinely regulating this technology. You know, and as an example, you know, I'm here in San Francisco and down our street, we have uh, autonomous cars being tested uh, every, every few minutes. Uh, and, and every time those cars are gonna come across a crosswalk, they're not gonna suddenly look at the crosswalk and learn Spanish. You know, they're, they're gonna learn the crosswalk at different lights. As we, as a society, integrate these autonomous vehicles into our house. And in San Francisco, we have two autonomous taxi firms right now where literally you can get in and not have a driver in the car with you as the car will move around the city of San Francisco. We will need to decide how these cars react to crosswalks. As the car gets close to a crosswalk and detects the, the unique combination of light and, and, and people around, what does the car do? Does the car slow down? Should the car keep going? Does the car stop and, and, and somehow demand intervention? That's the, that's a type of conversation we need to have as a society. You know, who who needs to take responsibility from that? Is it the manufacturer? Is it the coder? Is it a, is it a safety driver? These are the types of conversations that even non-technologists need to be engaged in for all the multiple expressions. Uh, of these uh, beautiful technologies. You know, Ed, I re you're, you're, you're bringing up an old memory that I have when I did work with Nokia. And, you know, this goes back to the uh, mid-90s, uh, late-90s. 
uh, and I'd be in um, their labs um, just looking at some of the stuff that they were doing. And they had all of these engineers, I mean, just brilliant, brilliant hardware and software engineers developing these amazing telephones in the amazing network infrastructure. What was missing was any reference to what did the, uh, what did the end user actually want to have yeah, uh, in terms of accessibility, in terms of usability, in terms of friendliness, those sorts of things. They were designing based on an engineering context and an engineering what's possible, what's possible. And how that gets mitigated, I think, is exactly what you're speaking to, Eric. Uh, how does it get mitigated? You know, it's important that we all think about what is easy and then what is hard. That, that And that really comes from an understanding uh, a little more deeply about how the technology works. This is where I encourage people to take some amount of computer science courses, mm -hmm. whether they're learning to program in Python or, or they're just trying to learn computational thinking or, or, or what I'm going to advocate here is category theory, which we could talk more about. Uh, you know, we, we can't really predict what's going to happen 10 years out with any degree of specificity. I mean, I remember in the early 2000s, you know, I had a nephew asking, you know, where they should be placing their career. And I, I could have a general concept based on the technologies at the time, what could appear in, in a decade hence. But I couldn't have predicted the exact expression of the iPhone. And even if I did, even if I did, this is what you could remember today. You would, no one, no one, not even the people that worked at Apple would have been able to predict what an app developer would look like as a job description, as a, as a, as a size and thing in the world. And then today, it, it, just to make sure none of us get a little too arrogant about it, none of us knew what influencer was five years ago, right? None of us would know. Uh, so no, we don't know what the different expressions of these technologies will generate for us, but we need to be constantly engaging what are the strengths and weaknesses of these of these different expressions and we we see what the dangers are for example with social media we were a little late to that party and we're still living with that that's going to happen more if we're not on top of it if we're not engaged in in what limitations we want to put what what sandboxes we want to put around this yeah, it's really interesting because uh, most people, the job that they'll be in in five years doesn't exist today, which is completely different than the three of us when we went to school. Uh, and to focus in on the skills, knowledge, and desire uh, is much more valuable today than the outcome or the educational outcome. And uh, you work, Eric, in the same context as I do. I've brought in, you mentioned autonomous, autonomous vehicles to analyze technology as it applies to economics, public policy, but also emotion. And one of the aspects uh, with the autonomous vehicle that is hard to understand in the world of giving up control is how will public policy, economics, and emotion deal with the fact that uh, the cars, the autonomous vehicles will make mistakes and they will cause property and personal injury. But at far less of a degree than human beings. And so those people that are like, I can never let you know an autonomous vehicle drive me, even though it's so much safer, if something should happen, it, it's an, atro you know, an atrocity to the technology that the technology failed, even though the technology is better than we are as human beings. And I think as I explored this in the economics of it, the public policy and the emotion, I think it's quite applicable to a lot of 
what's going on today. If you look at, you know, one of the most powerful things is computational linguistics. And now we have the panic of the Hollywood writers because they're seeing the same thing, right? That, hey, uh, there, there's a lot of uh, superiority to the linguistic part of it. So how do we deal with this emotional aspect in the context of economics and public policy? Yeah, it's funny that you mentioned computational linguistics. That was a domain of my academic research and, and my PhD. But I, uh, so I've been involved in that for a long, a long time. And there, there are domains here where we appreciate a degree of randomness. We, we watch sports because we want to see randomness. We don't want to see perfection. You know, even the most technologically advanced sports like Formula One that, that use computers probably more than any other sports that I'd be aware of. You know, we're waiting for the random accidents and to some extent or the skill expressed in the in the humans involved uh, mm -hmm. uh you know we don't want to see a perfectly proportioned uh, a piece of pottery sometimes we want a human to construct a piece of pottery we want to see the faults of that airplane design not so much you know, <laughs> we i fly 200 days a year not so much yeah, yeah. not so much <laughs> you know the management of a power system not so much right and so how you address that or are there not to get too pedantic but there are different types of ai systems there are probabilistic ai systems represented by large language models and then there are deterministic uh, non-stochastic ai models represented by good old fashioned ai or expert systems the combination of those represents a hybrid ai upon which you can build life critical systems and that's really going to be representing of the next decade so, so yeah, they're, they're you know they're migrating towards a more heuristic uh, framing. So they're, they're, they're learning to learn. You know, we will all be, be ongoingly taking our implicit knowledge, making it more explicit, and then turning it into a routine such mm -hmm. that it can be interpreted by a machine, automated, and then we need to go start all over again because we just got yeah. automated out of a job. Yeah. <laughs> that, that, is the, that is the sequence of events for the, for the foreseeable future. And that's going to be and, exciting as hell. And, and it's been historically, like human nature never changes. When they came up with the gas lamp, the same panic was going on in the cotton gin. So it's just uh, the power and exposure and awareness that we have to the advancement of technology. So it's going to be a lot of fun. Just I will say we need experts like Eric to help us maximize the servants that we're given because they are so powerful and deter us from utilizing the technology as a master. And we can still rely on human nature to make mistakes, human nature to be emotional, and human nature to be of service and utilize the technology to help us with all three of those things. Eric, I'm gonna have to cut a tiny bit short today just because I do have a human speech to give and we wanna have you back. We have multiple shows and we wanna delve into your genius and experience. I know Blaine's biting at the bit there to put you onto his show. So please uh, make sure your people talk to our people, check out connexus.com. Uh, there's so many questions that we have. The extra three minutes weren't gonna help us anyway, uh, but I owe you one. So please come back and get on our other shows as well. This has been a good, good fun time. You're amazing. Thank you so much for your insight. We'll see you soon. <laughs> it figures the last guest is the one I'd like to spend an hour with, but uh, we were going to have one, one extra three minute question. Was yeah. this guy has so much knowledge that you talk about an ROI of this show, the questions we ask, and you could change the way you look at things so quickly that could mean millions, if not even more, 
uh, in your business by understanding how the policymakers, technologists, investors, entrepreneurs have been dealing with this for over 20 years and how it's implemented today at the highest level from the White House down. Uh, it's going to be an amazing journey. Real quick, takeaway of the day, double B, BlaineBartlett.com. What do you got for me? Takeaway of the day, I'm going to organize it around um, the idea of the disenfranchised. And I mean, that, and that's just a, a broad paradigm there. But each one of our guests in some way, shape or form uh, talked about yeah, how we actually you know, uh, serve that disenfranchised, whether it's through uh, uh, investing, uh, making available to uh, minorities, women, whatever it might be. Um, the uh, the whole legal piece, how do I access, you know, if I'm disenfranchised from, <laughs> from a lack of knowledge uh, about what I need here, but also in the AI space and that whole robotic space. Um, you know, the, the need to be able to be served so that there's actually more of a level playing field. Uh, and it's about connection. Yeah. So there you go. Thank you. And mine is the invisible assumptions that we make. And a lot of times we're making judgments, which are opinions based on ignorance and doubt. And if we can elevate the awareness to the invisible assumptions that people have made, uh, we can collaborate and coordinate with those much better and maximize uh, collective conscious in a better trajectory towards what we all want in providing more value to each other. Blaine Bartlett, I will see you next week. It's so nice to be at home. We used to do this during COVID all the time in the same setting. And you never know what car, plane, train, automobile, hotel room either of us is going to be in. But uh, they're sure nice, just like Dorothy said. <laughs> nice to be you home. <laughs> Send my love to everyone. The incredible Blaine Bartlett. Take care. Hundreds of episodes of Office Hours. Check them all out. You can catch Blaine Bartlett. I got to jump. I got 120 seconds to get to my speech. I appreciate everyone. Reach out to me if you want to join us for anything. Trainings, guides, books, exercises. 6 a.m. Pacific time tomorrow. Free Friday training. David at dmeltzer.com. Almost 90,000 people registered for this Friday. David at dmeltzer.com. Join our text community. Get notifications of all the meetups, VIP dinners, speeches, and trainings. 949-298-2905. Remember, most importantly, be kind to your future self and do good deeds. We'll see you tomorrow. Thanks.